Now, through my time in university, I came to really appreciate doing uh, my studies at the coffee sh- a coffee shop that was just off campus. Um, finally, a couple years ago, this uh, chain started bringing the restaurants up north into Canada. I went to school in the States. Um, I loved doing work at Panera Bread. I loved it because of the, there's a lot of things in that atmosphere, kind of the culture of Panera Bread that made me want to keep going back there. It was comfy, nice music. Most importantly, like you buy one cup and you get endless refills of coffee. And hazelnut, their hazelnut flavor came to be my favorite. I could get there early morning and I could be there all uh, day. Really loved the culture of doing my work in Panera Bread. Uh, different restaurants different workplaces, different countries, all have different cultures. Cultures are our lived experiences in the different spaces and atmospheres where we live. Panera Bread has a different culture than Starbucks. Working remotely has a different culture than working at home. Living in Florida has a different environment and culture than living in Ontario. And some of these cultures, when we enjoy them, when it's a positive lived experience, we want to go back. We appreciate it. It's compelling. We find a sense of like home and belonging and rest there. Other cultures, when they're uh, not as enjoyable, we want to leave like a one-star Google review there and never come back and make sure none of our friends go there either. You know, different churches can have different cultures too. The lived experience of how relationships work together and what experiences and expectations are like there. And some of us have experienced uh, church cultures that are great. Places that we want to go back. Places that we want to invest to. Places that we want to tell all our friends about also. Some of us have experienced church cultures that we don't want anyone else to go to and we'd never want to go back to. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul urges the church in Ephesus to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Walk is is a term that kind of describes their conduct. But he's not talking about individually, that individually each of their own conducts must be worthy of their calling. He's talking about them as a collective, as a group, as a people. The conduct, your must be worthy of the calling to what you've been called. He's talking about their church culture, who they are, and how each of them contributes to that environment, to that atmosphere that we experience amongst one another. And he wants their culture to be worthy of the calling to which they've been called. That church that lives that way will have a a culture distinguished by a few characteristics that make for a compelling culture, one that you want to be a part of, one that you want others to be a part of, one that Christ can do his redeeming power and work through. This is what this passage is about today. How can we be a church whose culture clearly shows that Christ is in our midst and Christ 
is at work. Simply said, we must be true to our calling in the gospel. That's the type of compelling community that Christ wants us to be. We must be true to our calling in the gospel when we are. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16 says that we will be distinguished by three traits. When we are true to the calling in of the gospel, we will be marked by unity in our relationships, by diversity in our leadership, and by maturity in our membership. This is what God wants to do in us. This is what God wants to do through you. So today, I want to explain what it means to be true to our calling, what these traits look like when we live them out, and how we can each participate in this type of church culture. So if we're going to be true to our our calling in the gospel, we need to first understand what is our calling in the gospel. Like many of Paul's letters, the book of Ephesians is spent in the first half kind of explaining and teaching truths about the faith, and the second half is then the application of those truths in the faith. And here at chapter 4, verse 1, is the hinge from the instruction of our faith to the application in our faith. So when Paul is describing the calling to which he had been called, he's really describing everything that's come before in chapter 1 to chapter 3. And there are beautiful and awe-inspiring, like breathtaking, wonderful gospel truths in the book of Ephesians, isn't there? The book of Ephesians teaches us that our, through our calling in the gospel, we are uh, loved and predestined for adoption as sons. In our calling the gospel, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Through our calling the gospel, we have an inheritance that is sealed by the Holy Spirit and guaranteed for us. Through our calling in the gospel, though we were once children of wrath, now we are children of mercy. Through our calling in the gospel, all of the things that we might boast in that might divide us one from another, Christ has stripped that down in the cross and united us together in one new people. Through our calling in the gospel now, in the cross, the, only, the access that we all equally share, whether Jew or Greek, despite our ethnicity, despite our social status, despite our age, all of it, All the access we have to God is through the cross. And now we are being built up together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All of these beautiful, amongst all these beautiful and wonderful truths of our calling in the gospel, Paul's real point to teach all of them is real summarized summarized best by chapter 1, verse 9 to 10, and the verse 20 to 23. So look at those passages with me. This is the real summary of what our calling that we've been called to in the gospel. Verse 9, chapter 1. Christ, God made known to us the mystery of will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven, things on earth. 
Then verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is, the fullness, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So amongst all of these marvelous and breathtaking, wonderful truths that we have of the gospel, and what we are called to, what Christ is doing, the purpose in all of them is, as verse 10 says, to unite all of creation under his authority. Everything, things in heaven and things on earth. And Christ is reestablishing his rule over all of the world. This will be fully consummated when he returns, but he has not yet returned. So as we wait for that day when Christ reunites all things under his authority and there's no more suffering or sorrow, no more relational conflict or war, as we wait for that day when he makes all things new, Christ's authority is clearly most visibly seen as he is head over the church, verse 22 and 23. And the church is his body, his fullness who fills all in all. We wait for his fullness, his redeeming power and authority to be over and in and through all things. But as we wait for that, he's doing that redeeming work and power in us now. He's doing that and desires to do that in you now. He desires our culture to be a culture that consists of his fullness, where his redeeming power and authority is clearly displayed. This is the peak of what Christ wants to do in the gospel. This is the calling to which we've been called. The church that is true to its calling in the gospel chooses to orient everything in their own lives and in the church community under the fullness of Christ's redeeming power and authority because we believe what God will one day do in all creation, he is first doing in us as the first fruits of a new creation. We will be true to our calling when we choose to orient everything in our church under Christ's redeeming power and authority. That immediately means that we need to learn to put aside our agendas for what church should be, our desires for what church should be, our expectations for other people, and submit all things to Christ's redeeming power and authority. When we do this, when we are faithful to this, then we'll be distinguished by unity and relationships diversity in leadership, and maturity in membership. And what we love in the gospel, we won't just know it in truth, we'll see it in experience. Can you see it in experience in your own life? The evidence of Christ's redeeming power and authority. Do you see this as the culture of our church? So let's look at what this looks like specifically. We must be true to our calling in the gospel, and when we are, it will produce a unity in relationships. That's what verse 2 to verse 6 describes. The immediate thing when we're worthy of the calling is that if we are right with the Lord, we'll be right with one another. And it's expressed, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's the how, verse 2 and verse 3. But then Paul describes the why in verse 4 to verse 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, Paul's a pretty smart guy. Some of his writings are hard to read. They're very logical, and they can be hard to follow, especially if you're new to reading Scripture. But here, to describe the why, we need to have unity in relationships in verse 4 to 6. He doesn't give like a, a logical argument. He more gives like a poetic display for the why we must seek unity in relationships. It's through these, these words of oneness that we have, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, uh, baptism, one faith, one God. There's a deliberate poetic elements here because Paul doesn't just want to argue to you why you should have unity in relationships. He wants you to appreciate the goodness and the beauty that we have in Christ. There are seven ones that Paul describes here. That number seven in scripture, like it's seven days of creation, often is used to describe a sense of wholeness, completeness, perfection. And those seven ones are intentionally grouped around the three persons of the Trinity, our united God in three persons, one Spirit, one Lord, Jesus, one God, Father. Paul doesn't actually try to argue here for the why of unity in relationships. He wants you to stand back and see the beauty of the relationships that we can have. A perfect unity that reflects the union that Father, Son, and Spirit have together. Jesus even prayed that we would have this type of unity in John 17. He said, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, the church, that they may be one as we are one. This is quite remarkable. That Jesus says, broken, sinful people can have a unity in relationships that reflects the perfect unity that Father has with the Son, has with the Spirit, as one God. Do you believe that this is possible in the church? To have unity in relationships means that we need to conserve the natural goodness and beauty that Christ created in us through the gospel. Conserve what Christ created in the gospel. Conservation areas are natural green spaces, right? Natural green spaces that we as a society have said, this is beautiful, this is good, and if we don't actively protect this land, the natural beauty and the goodness of this land can very easily be threatened or very easily be urbanized. Think about like Central Park in New York. I don't know how big it is, but it takes up a lot of the island of Manhattan. And I haven't lived in New York, but I'm pretty sure that like real estate in New York is like really costly. And if they just took like a little bit of Central Park and made only a few 
more high-rise buildings? Imagine how much money they could make out of that. But for whatever reason, the state of New York and the city of New York has agreed this land, that we could make a lot of money out of it, the land itself is naturally beauty and naturally good, and we in deliberately and intentionally need to protect because we don't want to lose its goodness and beauty. We need to conserve the natural goodness and beauty of the relationships that Christ has knit together in the gospel. Do you appreciate the relationships you have with one another at church? There are a lot of reasons that it can be hard to, uh, even just for like, I don't know, superficial reasons, like just like different personalities. Like some people are just different than you and hard to talk to and it'd be really easy to make someone else as a friend. Other people just like like different things than you and like different music than you. And like, I'm finally realizing that I can actually appreciate what some of you see in country music, but as best as possible, I'd rather not listen to it with you. There are superficial things that can say, ah, I don't really want to invest a relationship with these people. But then there are like actual real painful reasons that we can not appreciate the goodness and beauty in the relationships that Christ has given us in the church. Because there's a lot of hurt that can happen in church and a lot of damage that can happen in relationships. Though Christ prayed for us to have a perfect unity that reflects the the unity of our triune God, Jesus isn't over-idealistic to think that like we're all just going to have hallmark, perfect, precious moment friendships in the body of Christ. That's why he taught about forgiving one another. That's why he taught us how to win our brothers back and our sisters back after we've hurt them. The unity of the church isn't good and beautiful because we are good and beautiful. We're pretty grimy people. I know my own heart. I know what's been happened to me. I know how I've hurt others. We're broken people. There's nothing inherent and intrinsic to ourselves that is worth conserving. Except for who God is and what God has done to bring us together. When we appreciate the goodness and the beauty, not in who we are, but in who Christ is and what Christ is doing through the fullness of his redeeming power and authority, then it'll be worth to make wrongs right. Then it'll be worth it to stay engaged in relationships when I get to a new church, even after I feel really worn down after the way I was hurt at my last church. Then, when we see these ways that we are supposed to contribute to conserve, it won't be a burden, it will be a joy. So this is the how we conserve in verse 1 and verse 2. Because we appreciate the beauty, I will conserve my relationships proactively with humility, thinking of the needs of others before my own, with gentleness. This is like meekness, being willing to lay my own rights down for the good of others. With patience, not taking personal offense, not rushing my own agenda. With loving forbearance. So there's proactively conserving relationships and there's also reactively because hurt happens. 
but I'm going to bear with others because I know Christ bears with me. I'm going to forgive others because I know that Christ forgave me. And I'm going to do it not lingering when hurt happens, not stewing over my bitterness, stewing over the wrong and getting a bitter heart, but I'm going to be eager because what I'm seeking to conserve is not a unity between me and another human, but what the unity of the Spirit. I want to conserve the natural goodness of what God has given us in his Holy Spirit in a sense of peace. Lord, help us to be able to do that. We must be true to our calling in the gospel. When we see what Christ has done for us and that how his redeeming power and authority in us is what he wants to also do in the world, we'll look at one another and we'll see that relationships are worth fighting for. They're worth conserving. Jesus himself was the ultimate example for us because it might feel like we are just too worn down and it's not worth it and that we've been hurt too much. But remember your savior, your helper, who himself was betrayed by a friend, denied by another and abandoned by most. But still even after he was so hurt by those who were nearest to him, still forgave. We must be true to our calling in the gospel. When we are, we'll be distinguished by unity and relationships. And it'll also be marked by diversity in our leadership. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7 starts with the word but. So while we have a unity in relationships, there is a sense of diversity within a church. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. See, in order for us to be the body, to be God's fullness here on earth, Christ has given gifts to his people, gifts according to different measure. Each one of you have been given a gift from the Holy Spirit. But then there are unique gifts that Christ has measured to the church in leadership so that the body can be built up. And Paul wants to kind of prove to the church the value of a diversity of leadership within the church. And I think we recognize today that um, there is a lot of skepticism that people have and apathy and even genuine resentment towards leadership in general these days. For some people, they just look at leadership, anyone with authority, and they just see the wrong that has been done, and they think that anyone with authority naturally has impure motives, is hypocritical, and the structure of authority itself is just oppressive, and it should all just be done away with. Other people, even good-hearted Christians, can see the constant noise of what seems like leadership failures all around us, especially through reading what happens in churches across the world. And the, the hearts just fail. And they wonder, can any leader actually last? Is any pastor actually worth following? There's a real and understandable concern and, and skepticism that we have. But Paul here tries to prove that according to Christ's design in the gospel, there's a healthy diversity of leadership 
that enables us to be true to our calling, that enables the body to be the fullness of Christ so that his redeeming work and authority can be at work in our culture. So I want to show you how he proves that to the people here. And then I want to seek to convince you why it's worth it and how we can cooperate with godly leaders. See, Paul tries to prove that diversity of leadership is good for the church by referencing a psalm. Verse 8 is a reference from Psalm 68. It says, uh, Paul says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This psalm is a poem, and it's celebrating the, the ascension of a triumphant king who has come and uh, overcome the enemies of Israel. He won a battle, now God's people are safe, and they're celebrating this a king who has ascended, who has triumphed over his enemies. Now, Psalms are often prophecy that look forward to a Savior who would come and finally triumph over his enemies once for all. So Paul is using this psalm to be able to prove that what Jesus did in his incarnation, in his death, his resurrection and ascension, that Jesus is this triumphant king. And the enemy that Christ triumphed over was sin and death so that we could be reunited with the life of Christ. But in order to triumph over sin, in order to ascend as a triumphant king, Paul says that Christ first descended. He's describing how Jesus, the triumphant king, left heaven and came to earth to become a man. And even further, Jesus descended from creator to live and serve amongst those he created. And he descended even further to be a sacrifice and to die for those people who hated and disregarded him. This at first looked like a defeat, a dissension all the way to a loss. But Christ's resurrection demonstrated that it was by descending that he triumphed, And his resurrection was proof of that. And then Christ has triumphantly ascended into heaven. And now Christ reigns on a throne. Christ now is head over his church. He's ascended into heaven. And then as the ascended triumphant king, he is also a benevolent king. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. These gifts that Jesus gives from heaven are the gift of uh, a diversity of leaders to equip his saints so that we can be the fullness of Christ. He describes several different leaders here. He describes the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and I believe the shepherds and teachers are actually one role together. The diversity of leaders is given to serve the church in a diverse kind of ways. So think of a startup, maybe. How does a tech startup go from concept to being traded on a stock exchange? Well, it requires a bunch of different leaders to contribute in various different ways so that company, a company can flourish. There are like foundational leaders who might be like capital investors. Because like when you start, have a startup... You got no money, and you're making no money, and you have no product. 
So you need foundational leaders with seed investment who can give capital so that they can pay salaries, so they can start research and development, so they can do promotion and marketing, these type of foundational leaders. But then you need also, you could say, frontier leaders. These are people who are like the initial founders who are the person with the concept that like teen kind of like uh, just ubermensch person who has the dream and wants to do a great thing. And they're the one who catalyze other leaders, they're the one who does all the work, 80 hours a week, building the product. But eventually, that leader who might be good at the beginning isn't able to start to scale when the company grows. Foundational leaders might like invest capital, frontier leaders are really building the product and they're doing the initial work. But then you need maybe formative leaders. When you need to start to scale and when you just start to hire people, then you might hire like an experienced CEO who has done this before. You need foundational leaders, you need frontier leaders to move them to, uh, into a new direction and new places, and you need formative leaders who can take everything that's come before and build and develop upon that. Now, in Paul's day, these four leaders described apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers. These were formal, actual offices and roles. And now today, these formal roles may not exist as they did then, but their functional roles still have value in the diversity of leadership for the church. We need foundational leaders in the church like apostles and prophets. In Ephesians 2, the apostle says that these apostles and prophets, Paul says, are the foundation of the church. And they serve as a foundation for the church by uh, defending and contending for the once-for-all faith delivered to the saints. The prophets foretold of the Christ who would come. The apostles ratified it and validated that Jesus was the Messiah who would come. They hold the true message of the faith. And today... We need foundational leaders who are going to make sure amongst a changing culture and false doctrine that we stand firm to the same message that was de delivered from the apostles and from Peter and from Paul and the prophets who came beforehand. Evangelists, on the other hand, are frontier leaders. Like maybe Philip in the book of Acts. He took the gospel to new places and to new people. The once for all delivered uh, faith was in new areas and new hearts to make new converts. And then when several new converts in an area gathered together, then shepherds and teachers were the formative leaders. The foundation are those leaders who defend and contend for the faith. The evangelists are the frontier leaders who take the faith further places. And then shepherds and teachers are like elders and pastors who then nurture and nourish and grow a community in that faith. Jesus says each of these leaders and each of their functions are a diversity of the grace of the gift of God so that a church can be built up in love. Now what about our skepticism though? If we're going to actually see a church be true to its calling in the gospel, if we're going to see Christ work his redeeming power and authority amongst us, then the membership needs to learn to be able to cooperate with its leadership. And when that operates, when godly leaders cooperate with faithful members, the mystery of Christ's gift is that through the leaders that he entrusts his authority to, 
even though leaders might be seen on stages and leaders might be governing and making decisions and leaders might be executing ministries, in the mystery of how this, when this operates well, though men might be seen, Christ is ruling as head from heaven. Good leaders are gracious gifts from Christ to equip the church so we can be his fullness. So his redeeming power and authority can be at work in us and it can be at work in the world. Are you, in a healthy way, cooperating with leadership here at GFC? Or if you would look at your heart, do you have skepticism and a distrust towards just leadership in general? See, the beauty of leadership is that even though when it operates well, is that Christ, though he is in heaven, has his hand guiding us here on earth. The one whose word upholds the universe is the voice that we can hear in our midst. Now, with a skepticism that we might feel towards leadership, I think there are reasonable things that we can expect of our leaders so that we can learn to cooperate together and see Christ truly operate as his head here on earth. From this passage, I want to suggest four implications of things that you can reasonably expect from leadership at GFC that you can be able to cooperate with them so that we can be the body of Christ. If leaders are gifts to the church, then they should serve zealously with the gifts that they have. If they're given to equip the church, they shouldn't be sitting on the sidelines. They should be leading with zeal. And if leaders are gifts from the ascendant Christ, who first descended to the earth in humility, leaders should model integrity of the gospel in humbling themselves as servants for the body of Christ. They shouldn't be interested in promoting themselves, but promoting the Lord. And because there's a diversity of leadership in the church, leaders should be able to recognize their limits, to be able to see the gifts that they've been given, but then recognize that they can't do it all, and they need to be able to cooperate with other leaders to see Christ's headship at work in our culture of our church. And that would mean that they need also need to share responsibility with other leaders who can be where they can't be and do what they can't do. They understand that their responsibility does give them a measure of authority, but they need to share that with others and utilize that with a team. But with that, the goal of leadership is to be able to equip the saints. Look at verse 15 with me. Excuse me, at verse 11 and verse 12. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the, she- and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We must be true to our calling in the gospel, and when we are, we will have unity in relationships, diversity in our leadership, and we'll have maturity in our membership. Because grace was given to each one according to Christ's measure, and that grace isn't just for leaders, it's for members too. Leaders are responsible to equip the saints for the work of ministry, but it's your job to do the work of ministry. The work of ministry is our shared responsibility for our common growth in Christ. When we think about maturity, we would often maybe think, how do I need to grow? 
But when we think about the work of ministry and maturity of membership, the way we should be thinking for the culture of our church is, how do I need to help others grow? Whose spiritual life do I have concern for? Who am I giving access into my life so that they see the ways that I need to grow? This is your job. Who are you concerned about? Who have you given access into uh, your life so that they can encourage and build you up in the faith? What goals should we be considering when we are aiming for maturity? Well, the passage highlights two in particular. The maturity that we are aiming for is established convictions and proven character. We all enter the faithful like children. And this passage describes that children are very uh, impressionable. I can see that in my kids as well. Uh, I can see that in my two-year-old and they listen to the songs that I like and they play the games that I like. And, but also, if we're not careful, impressionable children can also be influenced by things that are not helpful for them. My wife and I were watching a movie the other night, and it was a movie that adults would be able to watch, and my daughter decided to come down at a certain point in the movie, and I was just like, let's, let's pause the movie and get her back to bed, because I don't think this is something I want her to watch right now. Children are very impressionable, and it's the same thing with us. When we are young in the faith, we can be easily, as the passage says, tossed to and fro like a toy boat in the sea. There, it specifically says that there are three things that we need to be conscious of in verse 14 that can influence us in a negative way. We can be tossed and carried about by winds of doctrine, false teaching, people saying they stand for the name of Jesus who do not represent Christ. We can be tossed to and fro by human cunning, prevalent ideas in popular culture that without discerning, we'll just follow along the mainstream like everybody else's. Deceitful schemes. This word schemes is the same term that's used towards the schemes of the devil in chapter 6. Manipulative lies to deliberately try and destroy our faith. It's your job to be conscious of how others are being influenced in this way. And in what way is it influencing their convictions of faith? And in what way is it corrupting their character that should be Christ-like? We want to help each other grow in convictions. The passage says to, that we should attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Though we have one faith and we've been entered into the faith, we need to help build each other's faith up. And then with that, out of our convictions are formed our character, that we would attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. By being made alive with Christ and united with him, our old self has been put to death, and we are being made and becoming into a new humanity that reflects the perfect human Jesus Christ. All of our faith, forms into our practice. Our convictions motivate or, or inform our character. And our goal is to become like the perfect human Jesus Christ, putting off the old and putting on the new. So then, how do we help each other grow? Verse 15, 
Rather, rather than false teaching, rather than pop culture influences, rather than the lies of deceitful demons, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. The way that we combat all those things that would turn us away from mature convictions and mature character is to speak the truth of God's word and to speak it in love. Do you have relationships in the church where you feel like you can do that? Are you doing your part to contribute to the maturity of membership at GFC? When this works well and when this works best, the scripture says that every part is working properly and the body builds itself up in love. And those who equip it, the the leaders that God has given, they're really just the joints that keep the church together. There are different seasons in our life where we may not be able to contribute the way that we want to, where our capacity is limited. And that might be where you find yourself right now. Maybe it's the age that you find yourself in. Maybe it's health complications. Maybe it's just a season in your life where you're taking care of aging parents or young kids and how you once contributed previously, you don't find yourself able to right now. To you, I would encourage you to say that your steadfast endurance in seasons of life like this are an example to other Christians of the gospel and of Jesus Christ's endurance. And to be able to have some relationships in a way that your life allows at this time, though you may not feel like you are actively and deliberately uh, contributing to others, your life itself is an example. And to those of us who know people like this in our church, whose season of life or age or health circumstances, you know they can't be involved and participate in the way that they would want to. It's our duty to have the heart of Christ to reach out to people like this so that they're not alone, so that they can have fellowship, to not neglect those who need unique kinds of visitation and care like this. We need to share Christ's heart. But there are others of us who just may be slack, who they've allowed themselves to, to be lazy. You're content coming in late, leaving in early, uh, leaving early and not seeing anyone until next Sunday. While you may think that you don't need it yourself, what does your limited care of others, what does that show about your faith in Christ? What does that show about your relationship with Christ? You may say you love Christ and you have your own relationship with him, but to love Jesus invariably, is to love the thing that Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his church so much that he says it is his bride. And that means the people within it. If you love Christ, don't neglect to love what he loves. And if you aren't, it might be fair to ask yourself if you truly love Christ the way you actually think that you do. We must be true to our calling in the gospel. When we are, we will see that Christ wants to have his fullness, his redeeming power and authority at work in our midst, and you'll want to be a part of that at every step. 
You'll want to have unity in relationships. You'll want to cooperate with the diversity of leadership that God has given us, and you will actively contribute as the Lord allows you to the maturity of our membership. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In praying that, we believe that he will come and he will make all things new in his right time. But in praying that, if we believe that, it should put our faith into works to live as citizens of his kingdom here at Grace Fellowship Church. We must be true to our calling in the gospel. And when we are, we'll have a culture that you'll want to keep coming back to and that you'll want to share with others as well. Let's pray together.